Greetings, greetings, greetings. I want to make sure to provide the full title of the book I am currently reading, Of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Malidoma Somme. Chapter 2, A Grandfather's Farewell. Grandfather died while I was still completing the fourth rainy season of my life. I had been so used to being around him while the grown-up men and women were laboring at the farm that it took me a while to admit the stark truth that I was never going to find him again. Since my strange experience in the bush, my mother had kept her word and never taken me along with her when she went in search of dry wood. So, on those days, my only companion was Grandfather. One morning when I went in search of him, I saw that the dew was still lingering on his door. I was puzzled because he was usually awake and about long before the penetrating heat of the rising sun. Earlier I had seen my father go into grandfather's room and stay there a long time. When he came back out, he had looked sad, staring straight in front of him. He walked into my mother's zangala, taking no notice of me at all. When he emerged, his hand was full of ash. Some he poured in front of grandfather's door, and some in front of his own door, making a straight line in front of each. He went outside the compound and dropped more ash in front of the main gate, making another straight line. I had been staring at him the whole time he was conducting this strange ritual, but when I went outside to try to talk to him, he jumped nervously onto his English bicycle and left without saying anything. I lost sight of him as he rounded the corner of the house. Disappointed, I went back into the compound wondering where to go. Nobody else was at home except me and Grandfather. First I thought I'd call him out. Then I thought I would go into his room, but I thought better of both these actions. Grandfather's sleeping room was also a spirit room, and I had been told never to disturb him when he was cloistered there. Deciding to wait for a while, I went outside the compound. Our millet fields formed a green carpet as far as I could see. In the middle of this carpet was the dark circle of the well that served as our water supply during the rainy season. Birds and chickens were busy around it. I could not see them because the millet hid them, but the cackling sounds that came from the general area suggested that there were a lot of them. Far to the left, two majestic green baobab trees made me think of all the stories Grandfather had told me about them. He said that witches of all sizes illuminated their branches at night, burning the leaves with a milky fire that did not consume them. He also told me how these very same witches possessed the secret of separating their souls from their bodies at night and of turning their souls into light expanding to infinity. I had managed to get Grandfather to promise that he would take me to see their fireworks from the roof of the house one night, but he never did. While thinking about all of this, I had unconsciously wandered over to the baobab trees and now stood in their deep shade, standing beside their gigantic trunks, 
beneath their enormous branches, heavy with gray fruits in the prime of their growth, I suddenly felt small. I walked around their great trunks, searching carefully to see if I could find some remnants of the orgiastic rituals the witches had indulged in the night before. I decided to run back home, for I knew Grandfather would surely be up by this time, but I was disappointed to find that his door was still tightly closed. I looked into the room shared by myself, my mother, and my siblings. There was nobody there either. I went over to my father's door and tried to open it, but it was locked. Returning to my grandfather's door, I contemplated it for a while. Then took a deep breath, knocked hesitantly, and called, Grandfather? Come in, a faint voice replied. I can't come out. Panting, I opened the door and walked up two little stairs, then down another two stairs and stood in grandfather's room. I could see nothing. It was like entering a cave or walking into night. The room was so dark that I was sure one could sleep forever in it. Apart from a tiny hole on the ceiling that framed a tiny fragment of the immense firmament outside, everything else, including grandfather, was buried in the darkness. Come over here, brother, and be careful not to step on my medicine, grandfather said in a faint, tremulous voice. What have you been doing? I hesitated a little before speaking. Where are you, grandfather? Right here, in front of you. Can't you see me? Reassured, I crept toward the voice and sat down when my toes touched the mud elevation that served as grandfather's bed. He was still stretched out upon it, millet straws serving as his mattress and a burlap sack filled with sand as his pillow. He was dressed the same as I had always seen him in his ancient bow-bow. It took a while for my eyes to adjust to seeing in the dark. Grandfather had never taken me into his room before, and I was anxious to inspect his secret dwelling. Grandfather's room was, in truth, a magic workplace so unfamiliar it did not even seem that I was still in our family compound. Each wall held a row of containers of various sorts. Most were clay pots, but others were just battered old cans and bottles. Each one seemed to contain something. From the ceiling hung dozens of gourds. Some, almost all the same size, were lined up perfectly against each wall. Bigger gourds formed a circle around the center of the ceiling. Another circle of gourds formed a smaller ring around the tiny opening in the roof. The arrangement of these clay pots Tin cans and gourds seemed to fit together somehow in an intricate and interrelated pattern. They were the work of someone who knew perfectly well what he was up to. A rope coming through the opening in the ceiling was tied to each gourd 
and all the gourds were tied together in a complex design that finally terminated at grandfather's bed. The artistry was amazing. Have you been into this room before? Grandfather asked, drawing my attention back to him. He had been watching me without saying anything all the while I looked around. Surprised, I protested, but you never let me in. That's right. As long as my departure was not yet decreed, I could not allow you in here until you reached the age of initiation. In the dim light, I could see him looking at me with eyes full of tenderness. I could think of nothing to say. He continued, Soon, I will go. But before I go, I must tell you the message of your ancestors. Grandfather put on a grave face and gazed up at the ceiling as if his eyes were fastened on the beyond. Malidoma, you are not yet prepared to hear what I am about to tell you, but perhaps it is better that you are not prepared. Don't stop me while I talk. I will not speak out of my own thoughts, nor is what I am telling you just a story. It is a set of things about you that you must keep in mind as you grow up. The spirit behind the things you see in this room is using me to talk to you now. It has no mouth, but I have one, and we are friends. You understand? If you do not understand, do not worry. It does not matter right now. Later, when you're older, somebody will remind you of what I said today. Grandfather was right. When I became older and was ready to hear, Guiso, one of the elders of my tribe, helped me to remember. So, what I tell you now flows from that remembering brought about by Guiso, who understood the painful uniqueness of my destiny and hoped to help me to fulfill it after I became an initiated man. Every word my grandfather said that day was said slowly. Every sentence was given an interminable time for utterance. Every sentence was followed by a long silence, grave and filled with meaning. It seemed as if Grandfather had suddenly ceased to be human. He was disconnected from his voice, as if somebody else next to him were speaking through him. I could feel the presence of that spirit being below the sand pillow upon which rested Grandfather's head. Malidoma, the sweat of one person has significance only when it serves everybody. You have been designated to follow the white man so that you may serve as the eye of the compound, the ear of your many brothers, and the mouth of your tribe. Remember my words. You came from the water, which in our tradition is the symbol of peace and reconciliation. This water has a direction in our mythology. The north, 
the direction you face each time you stand in the place where the sun rises on your right. This is the place where those who have something to say to the souls of others come from. Now you must go west to learn the wisdom of the people there and represent to them the truth we profess. You are going to be initiated into the white man's witchcraft. Your people ask you to do it. I grieve for you. Many ambushes await you, but my spirit will stand by your side. Very soon, you will leave your family. It is happening already, and very soon, I will not be here with you anymore. In times of turmoil, however, Tingan, the god of the land, will be your shelter, shielding you from the storms of antagonism and blunt hatred. Your journey will never be a lonely one, but from it you'll never come back whole. The ways of the whites consume. When you come back, what you have learned outside the tribe will look suspicious to all of us. You will be only partly a Dagara. You will suffer great frustration, for you will call for a father who will not be here to console you. You will call for a mother who will want you to act as you used to before she will listen to you. Later, when you must go away once more from the warmth of your family compound, you will be forced to make up a new world for yourself. It will be a world where Patrice will be very present and Malidoma very absent. Do not be confused when this happens. The, the Dagara rite of initiation must be completed before you come to full understanding of who you are. In your labyrinthine journey in the white world, the world of iron, learn to catch the thought behind the machine or it will swallow you. Grandfather seemed to have completely disappeared from my sight. Although I was seated right next to him, I could no longer see him. The voice I was hearing had ceased to have a location but seemed to be coming out of the numberless containers lining the room. It was as if the walls themselves were speaking, the sound of it echoing everywhere as if in a bell jar. Grandfather had taken me into a world of wonder for I myself was transformed. Thousands of images of a civilization I had never seen rushed at me, all alive and real. Immense metal birds gliding high above the sky, their bellies loaded with humans dwelling in roads covering the earth as far as the eye could see, houses that challenged the vault of heaven and dwarfed men, trees, and anything else around them. I began to feel a kind of vertigo that made me want to lie down. In lying down, however, I never reached the cold floor of grandfather's room. I was suddenly transported into a high region of my consciousness where I stopped being a child. I was simply a knower, without age. I had never seen nor dreamed of such a place before. From there, I understood perfectly what my grandfather was saying. Stunned, suspended in my thoughts, I kept listening to the voice coming through 
grandfather. A long, long time ago, the whites came into the land of our people and waged war against us. They were equipped with enormous machines that roared like an approaching storm as they took the life away from our tribesmen. But in the end, we won the battle thanks to the magic of the pintul, the upside-down arrow. It sowed in them the seeds of death. I shot at myself countless times from this room. It saved the Birafor and the Dagara for a while. The white men died without ever knowing what killed them. After that, we had peace, but not for long. Very soon, more white men appeared. The French came from the west and the English from the east, and we were caught in the middle. We sent our children and women into the thick of the forest, and all initiated males were requisitioned to die for the tribe. Your great-grandfather trained more people in the secret of the Pintul. Animated by the fever of their last victory, our men were confident. The war raged for an entire season. For as more of these white pigs were sent to their deaths by our supreme warrior Pintul, even more appeared as if by enchantment. During the day, our men were in a pretty bad state for that was when those pigs fought best. Then their machines would roar iron into our men by the hundreds, but at night the whites would disappear into the forest, a place not at all hidden to the Pintul. The dreadful arrow would send death to their sleeping places and come back to be recharged. Thus, they won by day, and we won by night. Then one day, one of the men who guarded the women's secret hiding place came and told us a strange story. He said some white men were in the women's quarters giving them food, medicine, clothing, The messenger himself was clothed like a white man. We were confused about what to do for our law says that you do not hurt someone unless they hurt you. A war council was ordered and we agreed to make peace with the enemy. Oh, woeful decision. Fools as we all were, No demands were made. No compromises decided. We simply ended the war by refusing to fight. So the whites came in and settled. They built hard houses and large roads all over the area and forced our men to do the work. They even asked us to pay them taxes They had infiltrated our territory and we could do nothing. They told us that our fetishes were disempowered and that we must cleanse our houses of them. Many heads of family did so in fear for their lives. My father was among the few who refused to obey their orders. That's why today our family is one of the largest left. Those who threw away their fetishes died shortly after. The Tingan made sure of that. 
The families who obeyed the white man were dispersed. Dozens of families were thus wiped out in no time. So you see, some say that the white man became smarter, stronger than us through the help of the avenging spirits of the ancestors. He conquered us through confusion. Your father is one of their victims, but fortunately he is a victim who is still alive. And do you know why? Because we did not destroy our fetish. One day, he too will come to understand why one should never, under any circumstance, forsake one's own ways. If you do not abide by the ancestral law, you tacitly ask for your own punishment. In your father's case, it was prophesied that his heart would melt in the face of the white man's fetish that he would follow him, but it was not part of the plan that he go too far into this maze, just far enough so that our people would have something to work on, a sample of the white man's ways. Your father's illness was a warning from the ancestors that he should stop. See, his troubles have made him wiser. I don't think he wants to travel anymore. Grandfather paused. The strange vibration in the room stopped. My consciousness shifted. I was back in the everyday world and could now see him as a normal man. His face was shining with sweat as if it had been anointed with sacred oil. His cheeks were smooth and round and had almost no wrinkles as if he had reclaimed his youth. He looked 20 years younger. His eyes, wet with tears, were shining with intensity and I wondered why he had been crying. He looked like somebody who had just come back from the emotional intensity of a funeral rite and was still in the process of adjusting to the ordinary world. He was soaked with sweat. His double voyage into the future and back to the past had taken a great deal of energy. Later, when I was older, I would recall this moment with grandfather as the most intense learning experience of my life. the burning disk of the sun was slipping toward its resting place. I thought of my parents on the farm far away and how they were getting ready to return home and take their hard-won rest. Suddenly, the sound of a breaking clay pot shattered the silent air, probably the one we had used for dinner the night before. Nobody ever had time to clean them before going to sleep. People worn out by an entire day of heavy labor who must be up at dawn to repeat the same monotonous work, have no time for housework. The noise was immediately followed by the sound of hooves. The main gate had been left open, and the goats and sheep had crept in, searching for scraps of food to supplement their diet of grass. Go, kick these animals' asses out of the yard, Grandfather ordered. I jumped to my feet, ready to run out and chase them out of the compound. And close the gate before you come back, he added. 
I was already at the door. The animals knew somebody was coming because they all turned and ran out quickly before I could kick the ass of even one of them. They had broken the clay pot and licked out anything that tasted like food. I knew that when my mother got home, she would storm at me for my negligence and forgetting to close the door behind me when I returned from my trip to the baobab tree. But there was nothing I could do about that except shut it quickly and rush back to grandfather's room. It took you long enough to return. Didn't those goats want to leave? Come, let me finish with you. Then you can go wait for your parents. I would like to take a rest. Grandfather was sitting up now and leaning back against the sand pillow. I approached and settled at the bottom of his sleeping mat, which was warm and soaked with sweat as if he had just sat up. Presently, he resumed his unearthly aspect, and the voice began speaking shrilly through his body again. Very soon you will leave this house to investigate the land of the Nipula, the white man, he began. It will not be an easy experience. In fact, it will be the hardest thing you will ever do. I am in pain for you, but there is nothing I can do about it. What is decreed is decreed. Our ancestors have told us that the best way to know who the Nipula is is to get closer to him. Iron cuts iron, but iron can only cut iron if it rubs itself against iron. The desire for such knowledge is good, but actually getting that knowledge is another story. Let the ancestors will be done. Remember, however, that in the process of fulfilling your life's mission, you must not forget that your roots are here with us. I say this because I know the hardships that await you. You will soon be shot into the void like an arrow, flying like a bird, diving the way an alligator dives to the, to the bottom of the river. But remember, the arrow shot into the air always returns to earth. The bird, however high it may fly, the bird, however high it may fly, never fails to return to the ground. The alligator can dive deep into the water, but it must always return to the surface to breathe. Remember where you come from. The day you pluck the Nipula secret, run. Even if you are at the other side of the world, run back and tell us. You are Biri for my brother, former priest of the tribe. You hold the destinies of thousands of souls, the souls of your people. Remember, to suffer for them is a credit to your name. Be prepared, Biri for you have come back for that. I salute you. Now, I must go. Saying this, Grandfather stretched and lay back down on the mat with his eyes fixed upon the ceiling. I could think of nothing to say. I did not really comprehend what he had told me anyway. Understanding would come later, when I was older and was helped to remember. Grandfather closed his eyes and remained still, as if sleeping. 
My thoughts slumbered in response to his stillness, and I could not decide whether to leave or to stay in this darkening room. My indecision embarrassed me, but at the same time I felt a deep peace flowing into my body through my back. It seemed as if a spirit was breathing fresh air into me, onto me. This freshness invaded my body and I became so cool and so relaxed I thought I was going to fall asleep too. I do not know how long I remained in that state. What I do remember is the return of the field workers from the farm and the great explosion produced by my mother as she dropped her load of dry wood in the middle of the yard. These sounds dragged me back to reality and I wondered at how quickly the day had passed. Slowly, I crept toward the doorway, avoiding the row of gourds in the middle of the room. Outside, it was dark. The sky, as usual, was peopled with countless bright spots, all dancing to the rhythm of an unheard drum. Far in the west, I could still see the place where the sun went down. Everything else was shrouded in a veil of mysterious darkness. Soon, my father arrived. He pushed his English bicycle into the yard and rushed into Grandfather's room. I walked around searching for my mother for I hadn't eaten the whole day and was mournfully hungry. I found her catching her breath in the huge hall. As if knowing what I was coming to her for, she pointed to her left breast and assumed a quiet position. Even though I had been weaned a long time ago and was used to eating solid food, my mother still breastfed me from time to time as a snack when no food was readily available, or when she sensed that I needed tenderness and reassurance. The day with my grandfather had been bewildering and had stretched my young limits to the utmost. I do not know how long I hugged on my mother's breast. Suddenly, I was startled by the noise of an engine outside the house. My mother pushed me away and rushed out. Disoriented, I remained in the dark for a while, then followed her. Father Malloy, the Jesuit priest who always visited the family, was standing there in the yard speaking very loudly and in very bad Dagara. Several people surrounded him, most of them from the other compounds. Father Malloy barked out a command and my father and one other person went into grandfather's room and came out carrying him. The little crowd joined in the carrying and and together they moved him out of the yard. I followed them. They put grandfather and a few of his personal belongings into the car. Shortly after, the car groaned and illuminated the whole yard, turned around and headed toward the mission hill. My father grabbed his bicycle. I ran to him and asked, Where are they taking Grandfather? To the dispensary. I'm going with you, I said. The night will be very cold and you are not well protected. Just go inside and wait here. I will return. I screamed and yelled and fell down on the ground, pedaling my feet in the air with frenzy. My father sighed deeply as if he didn't know whether to get angry at me or not. The next thing I knew, I was behind him on the baggage rack. The dispensary was built a few years after the missionaries settled in Dano. It was the same dispensary that I had avoided being born at. The first Jesuit to arrive in our territory 
looked like an explorer. He spent his first six months living in a hut down the hill. An administration building connected to the white colonial government and the church now sits on the site where he used to live. He paved the way for the other Jesuits by maintaining a steadily growing Christian community. When the others came, they built a huge house for themselves and a church for everybody all on top of the hill. From the valley eastward, everyone could see the steeple of that church. I knew none of the people up there except Father Malloy, who was a frequent visitor to our village. Next to the church were a couple of houses where sick people were treated with modern medicine. It was there that Grandfather was taken. A pudgy man examined him as we waited in silence. Next, Grandfather was taken to the dispensary room where he lay unconscious. Calling his name, I rushed over to him and grabbed his hand. Don't touch him, my father roared, but grandfather opened his eyes and seeing me, smiled faintly and closed them again. I sat next to him, my left hand in his right hand. Nobody said anything more. All the faces around me were shrouded with sadness. I didn't know why, but I did not care as long as grandfather was there. When I woke up in the morning, I was not beside Grandfather, but in one of the corners of the tiny cement room. I stretched my legs, rubbed my eyes, and looked around me. The sun had already risen. Its penetrating rays were already biting my skin through the corrugated iron roof of the building. Grandfather was still lying where I had seen him last night, and he seemed to be in a deep sleep. I got up and walked to him. Picking up one of his hands, I called him aloud. He did not answer. When I called again, he remained quiet. My father was not around, and I didn't know any of the many villagers in the room. I sensed, however, that they must be the leaders of other compounds. I looked at them for help to find out why Grandfather was still sleeping. You will never hear him speak again, one of the strangers said. He has become a spirit, another one said. I still didn't understand, but I hesitated to ask for further explanation. Confused, I sat quietly. It was a long time before my father returned with the doctor who had examined grandfather the night before. The doctor did the same ritual and left. Then my father stood in front of grandfather's bed and put on a grave air. He held up something that looked like a tail mounted with two handles, decorated with cowrie shells, stretched it out and put it in Grandfather's hand. As soon as the tail touched his hand, Grandfather opened his eyes and sat up, all in slow motion. His behavior seemed strange. Because he wouldn't let go of the tail my father had given him, he could not use his other hand to support himself while maneuvering to sit up. This seemed very odd to me. Ordinarily, Grandfather took an endless time to get up from his couch. 
He would begin by grinning and groaning while he turned himself over. Then he would grip the mat with his hands and one by one bend his legs. From then on, every movement upward would force a yell out of his mouth until he was on his feet. But this time, nothing of this sort happened. Grandfather's torso sat up as if moved by an invisible hand, then became immobile. Following the same impulse, his legs bent over the side of the bed, although they were cracking like dry leaves. Fascinated and speechless, I watched. Everybody seemed captivated. Then he began to rise as if under a slow and steady impulse, his body resembling one of the village spirit statues. I was not only fascinated, but also afraid that he might lose control and break his back. No one could possibly get up this way without using one or both of their hands to balance their weight. But grandfather's only contact with the ground was with his bare feet and one could see the muscles of the lower part of his legs compressed and straining under the thin, dark skin. Presently, he was standing straight up. This miracle completed, I rushed to him and grabbed his right hand, the one that was free. My father made a movement to stop me, but decided against it. Keeping his authoritative tone, my father spoke to my grandfather in secret, primal language. Grandfather said nothing in response. He just walked out of the room, preceded by my father, and followed by the delegation. I walked at his right side, still holding his hand. He moved strangely, too straight, too rigid, unnatural yet very conscious of any obstacle. Once outside, the crowd joined to make a circle around us. Although I was too young to understand the significance of this ritual or why all these people were not speaking with one another, I was glad to return home with Grandfather, even if he did not seem to want to speak to me. The four-mile walk took an equal amount of hours. Dead people don't walk very fast. They are not in a hurry. We must have reached home around noontime, for upon our arrival, we were each walking on his own shadow. People we encountered along our way stopped, left the road, and assumed a somber mood. At home, men and women were everywhere, having come from all directions to wait for Grandfather. Those who had arrived earliest were sitting under the shadows of the trees surrounding the compound. Others stood under the biting sun. Many more were still arriving. When we reached the yard outside the main gate, our delegation stopped. Five old men came out of the compound and saluted us in mystical terms, each one kneeling down with a grave air. I felt proud to be at the center of so much attention. They murmured something to Grandfather. He continued to be unresponsive, but they did not seem to mind his silence at all. I'm going to stop here for a moment to make a point. Different cultures have different relationships with their dead, and I know very well that in a culture of skyscrapers and high technology, dead people don't walk. Instead, they are placed in nice, expensive caskets and driven to the cemetery in elegant black cars. They are put quickly out of sight so that life can go on.
Why do the dead walk where I come from? They walk because they are still as important to the living as they were before. They are even more meaningful as the breadth and depth of our funeral ritual shows. We do not hide their bodies away because we want to see those bodies to help us remember the person's life and all the good they did for us. We need to remember that they are well on their way to becoming an ancestor. We must see our dead so that we can truly mourn them all the way through without restraint to release the grief from our hearts once and for all. True, every dead person is not asked to walk. My grandfather died on the Mission Hill, thus in a foreign land. He was an elder and a leader of great power and should have died at home. The only way to correct a death of such an important person when it occurs in the wrong place is to walk the dead home. Once the funeral ritual is at an end, his body would be carried to the burial ground. were peering at something beyond them, his face and body expressionless. Of all of us, he was the least concerned about what was going on. Presently, the people were cleared away from the gate and he walked into the compound. Looking behind me, I noticed that the crowd under the trees had stood up and were reverently taking part in everything that was going on. Beyond them, the whole millet field was colored with men and women in blue, white, yellow, red, and black clothing still arriving. As I marveled at this colorful panorama, I was dragged into the present by a pull from Grandfather who had begun walking again. We walked into his room. There, a kerosene lamp cast a faint yellow light disturbed now and then by the wind penetrating from the skylight in the roof. As Grandfather moved toward his mud bed, he looked both comic and dramatic. His stiff movements and his almost ghastly air gave him a look that was both authoritative and indifferent. He leaned forward just as he was about to reach the low elevation of his bed. He lifted his left foot and put it hesitantly upon the platform as if doubting the propriety of his actions. Then he stepped straight up until he was standing on the bed. Once his equilibrium was established, he turned around and faced the entrance door as if to contemplate the small crowd that had followed him into the room. There was no real eye contact, however, because Grandfather was now existing in a space that was beyond the living. Although he was physically present with us. He was only really alive in the world of the spirits. My father came to grandfather and took the hyena tail out of his hand, while two robust men supported grandfather from the back. Grandfather let himself fall into their hands, and with due ceremony, he was laid out on his couch. Once again, he looked as if he were deeply asleep. Disoriented by his sudden immobility, I looked around me in search of an explanation. The crowd outside was growing rapidly and I could tell something was very wrong. A little more than 24 hours ago, I had been transported into the future by grandfather's speech. 
Now he was sleeping, peaceably, as if indifferent to what was going on around him. The five or six men who had accompanied us to Grandfather's room were now busy. Some were rearranging the order of the gourds and cans in the room. Others were preparing medicine or lighting aromatic plants. My father had once again disappeared, but I could hear him speaking to a group of old women who were standing at the entrance of Grandfather's room. Get the material ready for the meal and warm up the water. Make haste. Everything must be finished before the sun cools down. He came back to Grandfather and proceeded to strip him of the remnant of clothing he wore. Then he massaged his body slowly and carefully. One of the men brought a clay pot containing some foaming liquid inside of which was a double-edged knife. My father lifted Grandfather's head while another man proceeded to shave his white hair. He wetted a portion of the snowy skull, then cleaned away whatever hair was there. Then he collected the fallen hair and handed it up to another man near him, who passed it to another, and so on until I lost track of it. The shaving went very slowly. When there was nothing left, the hairdresser put the knife back into the pot, then pronounced some lugubre lugubrious words. The gourds and cans in the room responded by knocking against one another. At that moment, the women entered the room. They put down an enormous clay jar full of warm water and three other medium-sized pots. One contained more water, another some seasoning ingredients, and the third one some millet flour. The women left without a word. The men rushed to the pot full of warm water and carried it to Grandfather's deathbed. They mixed the water with three different roots and two liquid substances that they picked out of some of the surrounding gourds and washed his body carefully. Grandfather's last toilet took an interminable amount of time. Those who labored on him were singing solemnly in harmony, a sort of genealogical recital. I can still recall some of the names, and later I understood that they referred to my very ancient ancestors. After that, the men recited the prayer of the dead. Other men who had not entered into the earlier singing now sang the canticle to the spirits who know no death. These spirits live in the underworld, in the air, in the water, and in the fire. The awesome voices of the men, tremulously mounting in the air like a mournful complaint, were seconded by other voices outside, at the entrance. The women's song was the most thrilling. Men who heard it groaned a brief sanwai, which means in our language, O oh Father. The women's shrill voices rose sharply like daggers and penetrated every heart, blocking our throats, sending chills all through our bodies and causing tears to well up from our eyes. I was crying, not because Grandfather was dead, for up till now I had but a faint idea of what death meant, but because these female singers made such a miserable lament that I was beginning to suspect some sort of tragedy had occurred. The room was suddenly overtaken by a blanket of darkness, thick and heavy, 
punctuated here and there by something that resembled a yellow glitter, a mild lightning. Behind the singing voices there was a continuous murmur, an unfailingly monotonous buzzing sound that was coming out of the surrounding gourds and cans. They were hitting against one another as if moved by the ropes that held them in place. Next I heard the sound of marching feet pounding the ground everywhere in the tiny room. The darkness became deeper and more terrifying. Footsteps also sounded on the roof of the house and little bits of dirt falling from the ceiling seemed to indicate that the roof was groaning under their weight. Inside, the invisible marching people shouted at each other cacophoniously and stomped loudly in every direction, bumping into invisible objects that fell catastrophically on the ground. The noise was getting to be unbearable. Then, everything began to revolve in a circle around me. I had the feeling that I was on a raft that kept turning and turning and not going anywhere. On the raft were half a dozen elderly people, each one my grandfather and each one making fun of me. They were laughing loudly, mindless of whatever I wanted to ask them. I kept trying to speak to them, but my mouth wouldn't form the questions that my eyes kept asking over and over. The raft finally took off into the air in an ultimate movement, it dived into the void like a spaceship. Overtaken by fear, I yelled. Everything ceased instantaneously, and I saw my father bending over me with an anxious face asking, Are you all right? I realized I was lying next to grandfather on his bed. They had dressed him up the way they dress everyone who dies. I wondered what had happened to me. Singers, Washers and hairdressers had finished their Kabbalistic activities and were now all interested in another, and were now all interested in another, no less mysterious one. They had transformed Grandfather's room into a kitchen where everything was happening upside down. A clay pot full of water was boiling quietly on the ceiling, its bottom sitting against the roof. Beneath it was a fire dancing inside a triangular fireplace, its boundaries marked off by medium-sized stones, each of which could easily have weighed ten kilos. The whole fireplace, fire, stones, clay pot, and water were suspended, as if by enchantment on the wooden ceiling. Beneath this vertiginous fireplace, Men were busy readying the many condiments necessary for the preparation of a meal outside the force of gravity. I was fascinated by this upside-down boiling pot of water. The whole thing appeared to me like a joke. I had never seen anything like this before, and Grandfather had surely never mentioned it. One of the men poured some flour into a basket of water, yellowed by a mixture of herbs, stirred it, carefully, and tossed its contents toward the boiling pot. Instead of falling down onto the floor, the contents obeyed another law. They landed in the boiling water, which splashed upward onto the wood of the ceiling. Everybody went about their tasks as if unmindful of how strange their activities appeared. It was as if they were operating in a circle that defied 
natural laws. Involved in a strange conspiracy to challenge the great master of the universe. Soon the clay pot was filled with a gelatinous mass which roared like a volcano in action. Cooking vapors filled the entire room. The man who had poured the flour into the boiling water grabbed a flat wooden stick called a vo'ul and plunged it into the roaring sticky porridge in the upside-down pot. He began stirring clockwise, then counterclockwise. Meanwhile, another man standing next to him poured dry flour from a basket he was holding into the pot at regular intervals. The millet cake in the clay pot was slowly increasing in size, thickening, hardening, and making the stirring movements harder and harder. The first man was perspiring, his muscles contracting with each movement. He and the cakes were now growling in unison. When the first man was finished, he put his vu'ul down on the floor next to the second man, grabbed two pieces of cloth to protect himself from the heat, took hold of the clay pot and its contents, and pulled very strongly, holding his breath. The clay pot resisted for a while, then gave up and rushed toward the ground. The man quickly executed a rolling gesture, turning the clay, the clay pot upright to avoid pouring any of its contents onto the ground. That way, container and contents were deposited safely on the floor of the room, unspoiled. Almost immediately, another man performed the same rolling movement backward with another clay pot half filled with water. The new pot rose in the air, made a U-turn in the middle between the ground and the ceiling, and backed up onto the fireplace. Before the water began to boil, the man had already put some okra flour into it, along with some condiments. He added some dry monkey meat and a huge number of other medicinal products. In the meantime, other people were serving out the millet cake. One portion of the cake was put near Grandfather's deathbed. The other portions were placed in smaller pots and distributed to the women who were waiting outside the entrance. When the sauce in the second pot was cooked, the men took it down just as they had taken down the previous pot. The sauce was also served into clay pots and distributed, and a portion placed near Grandfather's deathbed. Deathbed. At that time, the cooks and my father approached Grandfather and sat around the still-smoking meal. My father pulled out the terrible hyena tail once again and put it into Grandfather's left hand. Grandfather had been sleeping all this time, indifferent to what was going on in his own room. Now he jerked, as if bitten or shaken by an electrical shock, he opened his eyes and fixed them on the ceiling. My father said, Father, get up. The last meal has arrived. Eat with us this food that strengthens the body and keeps the mind in a state of wakefulness. You cannot begin the trip to the ancestors on an empty belly. It is a long trip, a difficult journey. Eat with us that which while living you never wanted to miss. Grandfather did not answer. He stretched slowly upward until he was sitting. 
He gazed inquiringly from left to right and from right to left, as if to inspect his own room, then brought his lifeless eyes down to the dish in front of him. Everybody was silent and fascinated. There was a calabash full of warm water near Grandfather, and he plunged his right hand into it and washed, while his left hand continued to hold the hyena tail. Then he picked up a piece of the millet cake, plunged it into the sauce, and carried the whole toward his mouth. Five pairs of eyes vigilantly watched his every gesture. I noticed that the food disappeared before reaching the interior of his mouth. An invisible force simply absorbed it before it reached his lips. Nobody said anything or seemed surprised by any of this, so I stopped watching. Following the example of the other guests, I began eating. I was hungry enough to swallow an entire roasted monkey and a few gallons of its gravy. We ate without a word as Dagara customs command. The mouth that eats cannot be the mouth that talks. Grandfather was the first to stop eating. He let his hand fall onto his upper leg for a short time, then lifted it toward the calabash and again washed his fingers. That activity took a comparatively long time. He did not seem to be in a hurry at all. When he finished, the other men followed his lead. All washed their hands, and I was left alone to eat the leftovers. I pulled the two clay pots and their contents nearer to me. Everybody was looking at me, and without a word, I understood that I better eat fast. Years later, when I was older, I would come to understand what I had seen that day. The out-of-gravity culinary art was a secret practice performed only when a leader of exceptional standing died. The day of my grandfather's death was the first and last time I ever saw it, for as things changed in our tribe, the practice passed away, perhaps along with the secret. Today it has become a tale, but for those who had direct contact with the reality of Satulmo, as it is called, it is a sad thing to realize how much my people have lost and how much yet of our reality is to be buried in the pit of oblivion. The food preparation within the precinct of reverse gravity was a symbolic enactment of the realm that the Great Ones enter through death. By leaving his body, Grandfather had escaped the laws of physicality. Therefore, only food cooked according to the laws of the new realm he now inhabited could be eaten and digested effectively. There are secret plants in nature that are very powerful. By using some of these plants, known only by healers and men and women in touch with the great medicine of Mother Earth, our cooks were able to produce for a short time an area free of gravity. The sun was about to set. The compound was black with men and women, girls and boys who had arrived from the four corners of the tribal territory to pay homage to Bakae, my grandfather. I ate faster. The dishes were soon clean and one of the guests took them away. My belly full, I looked up toward the wooden stove that had yielded such a great meal. 
but there were now no traces of stove, fireplace, or fire on the ceiling above. By now the sun had sunk behind the mountain, and a crepuscular dew had freshened the air. The wind had stopped blowing, and time was still, as if waiting. My father, who had vanished for a while, now reappeared dressed in a ceremonial outfit. His huge cotton blouse had been woven by expert craftspeople. It was decorated at the neck with a circular arrangement of alligators, each one holding the tail of the one in front of it in its jaws. On the front of the blouse was an immense embroidered zodiac, a symbol of our tribal cosmogony, and the medicine wheels embroidered on the garment gave my father a powerful and occult air. At the bottom of the blouse, a series of stars of different colors made him look very wide and muscular. Beneath the blouse, which ended mid-calf, could be seen an immense pair of trousers whose ankles were decorated with a series of smartly rendered arabesques. The bottom of these trousers was so narrow that I wondered how he had managed to stick his legs through. Beneath the pants, I saw a pair of modern shoes. So highly polished they shone even at twilight. The entire outfit was topped by a tightly fitting traditional hat, shaped something like a western beret. Slung over his back was his medicine bag made of antelope skin and filled with cowrie shells. When my father entered grandfather's room, everybody stood solemnly. I wanted to get up like everybody else, but I was paralyzed by the heavy meal I had eaten. Fortunately, I didn't have to, for in the next moment, everyone departed, leaving my father and me alone with Grandfather. My father knelt down in front of Grandfather's still-seated figure, took out some white, powdered substance, and dispersed it into the air. Like most magical things, it smelled terrible. I was suffocating, but my father seemed perfectly at ease with the smell. Here I am, he said humbly. At these words, Grandfather opened his eyes, which had been closed since the end of the meal, tightened his grip upon the hyena tail, and said mechanically, Everything is ready. I relinquish the destiny of the family into your hands. Though I must go, yet I will always remain here, from the realm of the dead. I will be more useful to you. I will be there and here at the same time, because I have no flesh any more. Son, the time has come for you to become an authority, a well of wisdom. Behind this tribe of men and women, you must stand vigilant. Sleep only when it is necessary. Eat only when it is necessary. Guard the wellness of the Birafor. The prosperity of this family is in your hands. As he spoke, Grandfather's voice had changed timbre progressing from deep and rich to thin, shrill, and extremely distant. He spoke without moving his lips, without gestures, and without intonation, but the power of his speech was incontestable. As he continued to speak, a glow, first yellow, then green, came out of the crown of his head and spread throughout the tiny room. The medicine boxes started bumping against one another, as if moved by an invisible force. 
distant spirit voices could be heard behind grandfather emitting sounds of approval at what he was saying. My father had a dramatic air. Frowning, he bent his head in humility and abandoned himself to the will of the voice that spoke to him. After a brief silence, grandfather continued, Son, I have preserved within myself a sense of honor, truth, and faith to our traditions. I grew up in the shadow of the sacred rites of the tribe and the family, and as a youth I labored to use what I had learned from the school of our fathers. As I accepted more and more responsibilities, I pushed myself further than I thought I could go so that the family would prosper. Our prosperity is at its height now. Our name, the Birafor, is known everywhere, even in other lands across the big river. Remember then, the higher the rise, the more painful the fall. Keep the family's prosperity and honor up there where I have kept it. This is the least you can do, to not allow our family to sink. Let me stand next to you to continue working with you. When you are confused, I will come into your dreams and tell you what to do next. There is yet another thing that you must know about and accept for what it is your own experience with the new knowledge that the whites brought here must serve you well there are dangers in being with them in studying what they know one of these dangers is forgetfulness if your knowledge of their ways must mean forgetting yours i ask you to abandon this relationship with them now but i do not believe that will happen on the contrary i believe that your dealings with them will prove beneficial you will by your privileged connection with them, prove to other families within the tribe that the dog and the cat can live peacefully together. That is why we must open the family to the new era that has enveloped the entire black race. We must, with care, expose our children to this new wind that comes from the West. Who knows, maybe tomorrow our medicine bag will be enlarged. This is the hour of experimentation. We cannot sit with our hands folded and surrender passively to this alien threat. By sending our children to mix with these people, let us begin our quest for resolution to our difficulties. The time has come for a new definition, new visions, new warriorship. Remember, it is the ignorance of submission that costs you a wife and three children. You do not want to remain passive anymore. Your experience must become useful to you now. The war against our enemy must now begin with a peace treaty. I am offering you an intelligent way to confront a problem we do not yet understand the exact nature of. My words stop here. Farewell. Grandfather had finished his speech. A heavy silence fell upon the room. In ceasing to speak, he had ceased to be the life force of the family. 
Outside, the crowd had grown larger than ever and a thick blanket of darkness was gradually overcoming the twilight. For a brief moment, my father knelt silently in front of grandfather. Then he stood up, took the magical tail out of grandfather's hand, helped him to lie down and left the room walking backward. No sooner had he stepped outside than an uproar filled the quiet air. An immense cry that began in the compound spread like fire, reaching every single person within hearing distance. At the same time, the sound of the funeral xylophone could be heard from the roof of our house. Two sharp notes, swiftly rendered, followed by a development at the octave, then a central note, continually sustained, completed the musical message. A great chief, Bakaye is his name, left this morning for the great journey. The living are mournful. Almost at once the same sound was heard further off, transmitted by another xylophone. I ran into the compound, attracted by the violent and sudden uproar. Women were lamenting as if caught by a boundless calamity. My mother, the most pitiful of them all, Assisted by half a dozen elderly women, she was running here and there like a cow painfully stung inside her ear by a bee. The elderly women followed her everywhere she went, running or walking in symphony with the risings and and fallings of her grief. Her cries had a devastating effect upon the women around her. I too cried, moved by the pain mother was expressing but nobody aided me in my grief. Crying without help, I walked alone outside the compound. There the scene was even more turbulent. A couple of hundred people were offering, each in their own way, their condolences to the beer of four. Some men were literally barking their grief. Some women were whispering words made unintelligible by the general howling. The women were the best vessels of pain, Their laments rose out of their throats and went up like a witch's fire, vanishing in mid-air as if by enchantment. Then the same laments would begin again, sharpened as if they had attained the roof of the sky and were now traversing the atmosphere in their descent toward earth. As if they had bodies of their own, their cries seemed to fall upon the ground, becoming grave and slow as if chiding the ungrateful earth for having deprived them of someone they cherished. All Dagara funerals are accompanied by great mourning, but this level of grief was even greater than what was usually experienced. I think that all of these women remembered grandfather's generosity. A great many of them were still alive because of him, and they knew it. They mourned for his loss, and for what a tomorrow without him might bring. Under the 200-year-old baobab tree, in the middle of the millet field, men and women were regrouping slowly around a pair of xylophones and a drum. Grandfather's funeral had begun.